Hi, friends. Welcome to this episode of Boss Barista. I am Ashley Rodriguez, and I am honored and thrilled to have Vava Angweni here in, not the studio, but over Skype with me today. Hi, Vava. Hi, Ashley. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm awesome. I am super excited to have you here today. Uh, Vava gave an amazing talk at RICO, and I've been wanting to follow up with her, and we've had a couple of conversations since then. Um, but just to give you a little bit of an introduction, Vava is a self, the self-described chief coffeeholic at Vava Coffee, which is a social enterprise group working with farmers throughout the entire supply chain. And she's also the co-founder of Gente del Futuro, um, which is a, another organization focused on education. And she'll tell us a little more about uh, the work that she does um, throughout this interview. But uh, just to get started, um, can you tell us a little bit more about just you as a person? Like, how did you get involved in coffee? Because you kind of had a kind of unconventional way of finding your way into coffee. Uh, well, um, I got into coffee purely out of curiosity. And um, mine was, I would say, um, not... Uh, sort of the typical thing to do from, you know, the, the kind of family background I, I come from. So um, it was um, a tough, tough decision, but I, I don't think I've ever regretted uh, the decision to pursue the, the coffee journey. So um, after, I'd, I'd say, a lot of exposure to a coffee drinking culture, in the Western world. Uh, I did do my undergrad education in Canada and uh, later on um, traveled through um, Europe, the US, doing my master's. And I kept asking or looking at sort of the socioeconomic issues that surround um, this drink coffee. And um, I know that uh, at that point, of course, I, I did know the value of coffee uh, back home in Kenya in terms of uh, the farmers that grew it. I mean, my grandma used to grow coffee. I mean, they still do grow coffee. And um, for me, it was that question of why things were the way they were, because back home, I saw farmers that were struggling, uh, smallholder farmers that um, kept complaining about market prices. And I never quite saw, um, you know, the, what I'd say, the, uh, what do you call them? The sort of the equivalent of like a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons or, you know, the, the, the glitz and glam that went with coffee that I saw in Canada. I never saw it at home. And this sort of um, made me um, a little bit more curious to, to delve further and find out what and why and how can I, what can we do better in Kenya to promote our own coffees? And what can I do as someone who's been exposed to this culture to improve the lives of, uh, you know, people back home, my community back home. So essentially, that's the, the short version of the story. I mean, the long version of it is um, a book. <laughs> <laughs> but what made you specifically want to start the business that you have now? Um, I've always been sort of, I think, internally a rebel of sorts. And in as much as that I conformed to a lot of Things that at that time growing up, because I knew that I needed my family, my, I mean, my folks to pay tuition. I needed a roof over my head when I was staying at home. But 
deep down inside, I think I always knew that I wanted to venture out and, and do something that would help my community, but something of my own. So um, a little bit about sort of how we grew up. I grew up in a very um, strict household. My I grew up in a middle-class family, and um, my father came from... Um, you know, a very tough background and being the one that really made it in his family. I mean, he lost his mother when he was three years and went to school barefoot, you know, all those, the stories that you hear of people that have made it um, out of poverty and lifting up uh, an entire community. So that was my dad. And so when he had his children, he instilled, you know, a discipline of one, education is key and um, you are you can be good at whatever you put your mind to. Um, that was uh, the other principle that he instilled in us. And um, you have to be ahead of the pack at all times. So I know growing up through my, my primary school days um, or my grade school days, uh, I was always like a class ahead of everyone else in, in any grade. Like I would have finished the syllabus and everything because my dad was my tutor at home. And um we really like my life, you know, back home was all about um, learning, learning, learning and, you know, just reading. And so I grew up, you know, in that kind of household. And I have a family of, you know, six other siblings. So growing up in a household of seven kids. And um, I would say that, I mean, we were more privileged than others. I, I wouldn't say that we grew up poor. Uh, but in as much as we grew up sort of in a privileged uh, middle class family, um, there were certain, my, my, you know, there were certain lessons that were instilled in me. One, um, always give back and help people who are in a worse off position than you. And I remember every Christmas, my dad would go around the neighborhood giving, uh, you know, the, from the, the security guards, milk, bread, and he would always help his entire uh, family back in the rural areas. He would get them jobs in the city he would just make sure that everyone was okay because he was in a position to do so. So I guess that sort of altruistic nature uh, rubbed off on me. And um, my mother being a teacher um, also ensured that we never fell back on, <clears throat> you know, various academic um, issues. I mean, academic studies and um, just being proper, you know, really well-disciplined kids that, hardly played but I, you know for me it was like as a child of course I was like oh I, my friends are having fun but I'm stuck in the house you know having to produce a grade so I would now I refer to it as sort of growing up in a military style family but I do appreciate some of the lessons that were passed down to me by my father and one of the greatest things I took from that upbringing was um, <clears throat> employment is slavery it's it's a it's a thing that my dad repeated in as much as he was employed. I mean, he was um, a senior banker in Kenya. and <clears throat> uh, But um, for him, every time he would come home, he'd be like, the reason I'm empowering you and telling you that you have to study hard is so that you never have to work for any other person another day in your life. With education, you can be anything. You can open your own company. And these were the types of discussions uh, we had with my dad Um you know, like almost every other evening. So I think that sort of built that, um, or it nurtured me towards, I would say, seeking a path towards self-employment. And um, surprisingly enough, I'm the only one in my family that uh, became an, enter an entrepreneur. 
Um, and, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, I also happen to have chosen a very atypical career, uh, coffee, something in agriculture, whereas I grew up being very good at math. So everyone expected I would either um, work in a finance, uh, you know, related uh, capacity, or I would either be consulting in finance or be a lecturer in math or something like that, or take applied math or become an engineer. So those were the expectations uh, from, you know, people in my family. And <clears throat> years later, um, I mean, my dad passed away in 2000 and um, coming back home, um, you know, the expectation was, first of all, you don't come back home. When you're given the opportunity to travel to a Western country, you don't come back home unless you're coming on holiday. Go make money and send it back home and help your siblings and help the rest of the family. Because you can imagine raising seven children. You're a single mother. And um, my mom was still, you know, striving to give us the best. Um, and in, as tough as it was, she did manage to give us the best, uh, despite, you know, being, being a, a widow at the time. So in essence, um, I would say the, the things that you, you never really can imagine can influence your decisions later on in life are what made me who I am. And in as much as I grew up in a middle-class family that expected me to sort of toe the line, get a job on Wall Street or, you know, in Toronto somewhere, working, you know, at TD Bank or um, you know, Canada life, because I did study actuarial science. Um, essentially I, I, I just took a different route and it upset, you know, my entire family. Uh, but I think, um, uh, currently, I mean, the situation is different, but, uh, back then when I made the decision, um, not very many people in my family were happy with, with that decision. So can you tell us a little bit about how, Baba Coffee came to be? Like, what were you noticing in the coffee world? What did you, what were you seeking out that you weren't getting that starting your own company kind of solved? Um, one, it was um, a representation of an authentic brand from Kenya, represent, I mean, uh, by a Kenyan, for Kenyans. Um, that did not exist at the time. Uh, most of the companies we have are multinationals owned by foreigners that are set up in you know the entire African region that actually um, source coffee from um, coffee farmers in Kenya or the region, and they market our coffees. So for me, the challenge was I was like, hey, wait a minute. I mean, I'm a, I'm just as smart, if not smarter, than this folk, and um, I know that um, I may start with a very you know a small footprint, and I'm starting this just purely out of passion and nothing else. It wasn't. My motivation was not, um, let me go make, uh, you know, let me go get rich. Of course, I mean, I love money. And, uh, and of course, I wouldn't get into something that was not lucrative financially. Um, but it was, for me, it was more than money. It was, I want to give back to my community. I want to try and take this risk for uh, the coffee farmers in Kenya. I want to be um, one of the few Kenyans that went back home after living in the diaspora for a while, um, and after so much money has been invested in me to stay out there, um, I want to go back home and take the lessons I have learned from the Western world and use them for the benefit um, 
of enriching the Kenyan economy. So one, that was, the I think, one of the, the greatest motivations was, why can't a Kenyan do this? Why do we have to wait for foreigners to come and uplift us? And yet there's so many smart Kenyans out there, be they doctors or engineers and um, entrepreneurs that are also people that would have been great entrepreneurs but were scared of coming back home because there's a safety in the paycheck. There's a safety in um, uh, a health, maybe healthcare systems perhaps in Canada that work well and uh, there's a safety in employment and, and a lot of us never fully leave our dreams. So for me, um, I took this risk um, simply because I wanted uh, to see what I could give back to the coffee community in Kenya and pull those smallholder farmers out of poverty. It, it, it's, uh, I know that uh, when I speak, you know, when I say these words to like when I'm at conferences and what I, and you know, the big multinational boys are like looking at me like, okay, Baba, you know, you're really not doing volumes and what you're doing is great. And they look at me like I'm like, I'm a charity. Like I'm just like uh, an NGO that goes to communities giving farmers or telling farmers nice words. And I'm like, no, I'm a business and I've, I've had some traction. It might be small traction. It's not like a, a, a big footprint, like uh, what the big multinationals trade. But we are making some ripples on the ground and people are taking notice of a different business model. Um, so the major motivation was that. And then, um, of course, other than that, of course, I knew that this is an industry um, being the second most traded commodity. I knew that there was money to be made. And I was like, why can't I have a piece of that pie, but do it in a more ethical fashion? And maybe by my presence in this industry, maybe I can help change things. Maybe I can help change, um, you know, something that's been for since 1952, uh, say from the Kenyan, um, from a Kenyan standpoint, I mean, there's been policies which um, have negatively affected um, how the, the, the coffee industry operates. And it's been to the favor of foreign owned organizations in, in this country, because these are policies that were set by the colonialists. I mean, it's, it's these policies were set, were set up during the colonial era. And most of these policies have hardly changed because we still have those same companies with offices here. And I mean, they do have an influence. So it was maybe by my presence and maybe when you stick out like a sore thumb and you are different and people think you're crazy, maybe they will start asking themselves the question, why does she think she can really do something um, that can help transform an industry where we're all so comfortable? And for me, yeah, those, those are some of the motivations that, that led me to where we are right now. So for people who maybe don't understand how coffee in Kenya is traded or how how the government's involved. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what the coffee commodity exchange looks like in Kenya and how your business model is essentially subverting that? Um, well, in Kenya, primarily for the longest time, um, the only way to access coffee was through the auction. Um, uh, the auction system um, is run by the, the coffee board and to participate at the auction, you have to get a dealer's license. And um, 
so all the coffees are collated through co- the co- cooperative system um, um, and presented at the auction. And um, over the last, I would say, couple of years, of course, there's been um, a few, I would say a handful of very powerful uh, multinationals that trade at the auction. So most of the the great lots or the good lots of coffee are usually bought by them. And I mean, there's been discussions about price fixing at the auction and all of that. I mean, there's been talks about the mafia that runs the Kenyan coffee sector. So you hear all of this conversations. But then uh, a couple of years ago, the government introduced um, the second window, which gave farmers the opportunity to sell coffee directly to whichever buyer um, approached them and whichever buyer that had a direct sale, uh, a direct buying license. Um, and um, Ovava Coffee um, works through the, uh, the direct sale window. And um, on top of that, uh, we do a lot more than just, just buying coffee. We invest in the farming communities with whom we're interested in, in purchasing coffee. So a lot of our time has also been invested in educating farming communities on how to grow good coffee. We have been doing a lot of um, interventions um, right from an agronomy pers- um, you know, perspective to a value addition angle. And there's been great projects that we've um, done with farmers, both in Central to Rift Valley, uh, Kenya, um, targeted not just um, to like the general corp or the general like farmer, but also very gender specific projects that we've carried out at farmer level. So in a nutshell, without talking about the other like intricate details of how the trade works, essentially that those are the two ways you, you purchase coffee. But then you also have companies like us um, that invest further in farmers with capacity building um, in, in now ensuring that you can forge a long-term relationship with farmer groups and ensure that you're purchasing uh, good quality coffee over a long period of time because you're investing in those farmers. Mm-hmm. So your talk at Rico focused um, a lot on the idea of decolonializing empowerment. And that's something, mm-hmm. number one, I'd love to hear you explain a little bit more, but number two, kind of kind of feels really relevant when you talk about what your company does, because I think it's really easy for a lot of importers and a lot of roasters even to kind of take these stories about, we help farmers, we do good work on farms, like, look at us shaking hands with this farmer and giving them a drying bed. And a lot of that, I imagine to you, feels very disingenuous. So I wonder, like, how do we start to talk about the idea of decolonializing empowerment, what that means, and how farmers are essentially taken advantage of for the greater good of people with money? Um, That's a big well, question. I, I, yes. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and break it down and, um, you know, let me try to break it down and answer it the best way um, I can or tell, tell that bit. In, in, a, in a palatable manner. So at RICO, when, when I talked about um, decolonializing um, empowerment, it was, uh, it stemmed mainly from my observation with what I see are the facts on the ground versus what we see 
uh, importers marketing or roasters marketing. And yet the situation on the ground has been totally different. And um, I think it all stems from one, a lack of um, a lack of information or a lack of education on all facets within the, the entire coffee chain. I see lazy importers, importers that uh, do not invest their time and energy at origin properly engaging with people that can actually give them value. And I, when I say lazy importers, I say importers that are happy just trading in the same old, same old way of, because one, they get a credit facility from a certain exporter at origin and they're happy to work that way. And I know that we all need credit facilities, but at the same time, all of us should hold whoever we work with accountable for information, especially if you're going to slap a direct trade uh, tag on your coffee or you or you say you are a, uh, you have a long-term relationship with a group in Nyeri or Rift Valley. Uh, it should go beyond photos. It should go beyond um, swinging into Kenya, going to a cooperative every, I don't know, three years, there's a lot of time, energy, and uh, I would say blood, sweat, and tears that, that, that goes into investing into seeing that producers are lifted out of their current situation. Because, I mean, coffee has ceased being profitable for a lot of co- In as much as people uh, keep saying, oh, Kenya, you guys get the best prices. And I'm like, okay, how about you guys come to Kenya and look at the situation of these farmers on the ground? Tell me if they're actually feeling the impact of these great prices and tell me what is wrong. You know, can someone, I mean, the situation on the ground um, tells the real story. Whereas when you go to a coffee shop, um, be it in the US or Europe, you're seeing all this glitz and glam or someone shaking hands with someone, feeling that they're doing, they did that farmer a favor uh, by purchasing coffee from, I don't know which exporter, and yet most of these exporters have never even stepped on these coffee farms until maybe someone flew in and they said, hey, how about we do a trip? Uh, we want to meet the farmers we've been buying coffee from for the last three years. So I'm like, there's a lot of, there's very little due diligence being done um, or people being held accountable for this, I would say, marketing pizzazz that is being thrown around about projects at origin. And I know there's a couple of other genuine folks. I'm not faulting everyone, but for me, it's, um, uh, when, when I brought up this discussion, you know, at Rico as well, it was more towards the fact that, um, sometimes farmers are held at ransom because maybe there was, um, um, an importer who perhaps, you know, maybe financed drying beds or something. And, um, or financed a small project on at a cooperative. And then the moment this group of farmers found a better buyer who offered a better price and offered them a better deal and they diverted because I'm like, it's, it's about, this market is about survival as well. So farmers cannot be tied down to, to, to buyers over time without seeing actual value, especially when they're not feeling the impact in their pockets. So, when certain investors or certain importers pull the plug on, on projects or certain organizations pull the plug on projects, 
uh, or certain developmental organizations decide they will audit or run, you know, random audits on pharma groups simply because the pharma groups decided to venture out and hustle for themselves and look for more opportunities for themselves. It's an unfair game because I'm like, this is, you know, it reminds us a lot about slavery. It's like, for how long do you want to enslave the coffee producer? Because it's, it's, I mean, it's modern day slavery from what I see on the ground here in Africa. It's like, um, you will only sell to me. And, you know, the moment you sell to any other person, um, you know, we're done. We're pulling the plug on whatever projects we were doing with you guys. So it stems one from a project perspective where you find maybe some groups have invested on small projects with producers and they pull the plug simply because producers maybe decided to sell their coffee elsewhere. The other one, I mean, the other reason for that point was, um, of course, false marketing. And... um, saying one thing, but well, in actual fact, the situation on the ground is, is different. And I think um, it's a call to for all of us to also be just more accountable in our actions or who we choose to work with. Um, what I think is really interesting about what you're saying, though, is that importers, not every importer, like you said, um, but importers and farmers enter this agreement that almost ensures that importers... Um, create dependency yeah. on these farmers, where these farmers are entirely dependent on importers being there. So, like the narrative kind of goes, like, "Well, we're helping you, but you need us." Yeah. Um, versus what you were saying about decolonializing empowerment is that like empowerment should be about giving someone the tools to succeed, and you not needing the them not needing you to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um, and the best analogy I gave was parent and child. Um, like as parents, we're there to ensure that our children become independent. And whatever form, shape that takes, um, we're, you know, it's not our duty to now go hovering over our children wondering, but I didn't teach you, you know, my form of independence was not that. No, we are day, on a daily basis. We're empowering our children to, to grow and become themselves, not, not us. So in the same case as, you know, importer um, producer relationships where you find that, you know, projects on the ground by developmental organizations, forget about even imports. It's for me that I think I felt it more because of developmental organizations that work on the ground uh, with producers. Um, I wouldn't mention names, you know, in, in, on this podcast, but it's, it's that thing of recreating a dependency over time. And I'm like, wait a minute, why do we keep throwing around this word empowerment? Women empowerment, uh, producer empowerment, let's empower. And I'm like, one thing I've realized is that none of us within the sector is really genuine about empowering producers. How much investment is actually going towards educating producers? Very little. But we spend so much on educating the other facets of the coffee chain, be it baristas, be it um, the entrepreneurs that get into the sector. There's a lot of material out there on that. But when was the last time as an industry we actually focused on producer education? I'm like, it's like, uh, what do you call it? It's like, um, it's almost like a conspiracy. So that, you know, keep keep the, keep the producers... Uh, 
least knowledgeable um, or keep all of these things such, you know, let's speak at such high level language that producers will never get what we're saying. Um, and at the same time, let's take advantage of them because then and only then you can only take advantage of someone out of ignorance. But I'm like, there's a couple of producers out there that are so knowledgeable about what their rights are, uh, the alternatives that they have to them. But these are producers who are also not the smallholder, you know, type of producer. And for me, the fight has always been for this smallholder producers to be elevated to another level such that they're not taken advantage of. So, yes, empowerment in the context in which we speak about it in the sector today is really not empowerment. It's more like uh, everyone else wants to look good. They want to tick a box. An importer wants to tick a box. Some roasters want to tick boxes. Everyone, a developmental organization wants to tick a box and say, hey, uh, we built you guys dry beds and uh, we're going to train you and train you on gender sensitivity and gender equity. And then we're, we're going to keep breathing down your throats. And the moment you show any 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 sort of uh, independence of any sort, we're going to come cracking down on you. So I think it's an unfair situation. It seems like this issue has a lot of um, different layers too. Something that you had mentioned to me before when we were talking beforehand was also... Um, creating independence through the entire supply chain. So you mentioned at Vava Coffee, you do everything. You source, you import, you roast, you package. And I wonder I wonder a little more about that. Like, what does it mean to take on that entire supply chain? And why is it necessary for farmers to get more involved in the other end of things, of roasting, of buying, of selling coffee? Um, for me, it, it was like, it was a no-brainer that I had to be, um, we had to do everything. We had to be vertically integrated as, as, a, as, a, as an organization. And um, the only thing we don't do in Kenya, of course, I don't, we don't own our own coffee farm. So in Kenya, we are still dependent on farmer groups. But um, with Hente del Futuro, we have a, a different kind of setup where we actually um, – are sourcing coffee from one of the farms and are creating a Hente del Futuro brand. So on that end, we are fully vertically integrated. But um, on the Vava coffee side, uh, once you go through the dynamics of running a business where you have so much uncertainty, I mean, the only solution is that you, you have to own your own story fully. And I, this was one of the things I mentioned. Um, other than Vava coffee being, you know, doing everything from, uh, we source from farmers, we export, we roast at origin, we roast and export a finished product. And, um, and we also, um, you know, go out and, and do our own trainings with farmers and we source the funding. It's a lot of hard work, but at the end of the day, you don't want someone else to control your narrative, be it um, and you don't want to be, you know, fully at the mercy of a certain policy that will bring you to your knees or, um, so for us, we have tried at every stage of this chain to see, okay, so how can we plug ourselves? And of course there's, there's bits of it where we're still lacking one. Um, the idea is that one, I want to mill the coffee myself. Um, 
right now we are dependent on someone else to mill the coffee. So we're trying to own that process as well. But we had to sort of run the whole chain. And this is what we're passing on to pharma groups. They cannot, farmers will, can no longer be dependent on export. We have to try and grow consumption at origin. And um, we have to try and have farmers brand themselves at origin and brand themselves so that they can own that story and tell their own stories. Why wait for an importer who may not have the best interests at heart, uh, you know, for you uh, to come and dictate what prices they want to give you all the time, you know, uh, despite, you know, whatever market fluctuations that are happening. So in Kenya, we have worked aggressively to empower farmer groups to roast their own coffee, create small coffee, um, um, small coffee drinking cultures in each of these regions. It's tough because we're not a typical um, coffee consuming country, but we have actually seen some positive results. And through this and, and having farmers introduced the value addition of their coffee in other forms, be it um, the coffee that they drink or getting into producing other byproducts uh, from coffee, it gives them more power. And it, 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 it um, takes away from this dependency on uh, an export market that places all the risk on the farmers. So that's, that's where we are with, with that. Something that we talked about the last time that we spoke was about how we talk constantly about farmer prices or farmers' wages and producing more money for farmers. And it's every conference is this, like we need more money for producers. We need to give them more money. We need to generate wealth at origin. And to me, it seems like this the discourse is the same and hearing your talk at Rico was the first time that I had heard a conversation that was different and I wonder what it feels like to you being on the inside seeing what importing looks like and hearing these talks just over and over again of like let's give farmers more money but then like the solution is never there is no solution like nothing has ever changed yeah and I tell you Ashley I've been in this sector 10 years and I'm so tired I'm so so I'm just like when will someone do something radical? And I'm like, you see, one thing I've come to, of course, realize, of course, uh, but I do appreciate the opportunity. I really appreciate the opportunity I got at Rico because I also feel that for once I was a different face and a different um, type of speaker that people did not expect. And um, the industry needs for more radical things to happen because one thing I said, and I said this to my fellow um, committee members on the Sustainability Council a few times, is that I can't keep coming for meetings and talking about producer profitability and climate change and whatever. And as much as these are important issues, but then again, when we talk about solutions, how many people, especially the big boys, I call them the big boys because I'm like the people with the muscle to actually shift and create this change, how many of them are actually willing to change and get out of their comfort zones of the way they trade and the way they do things? How many of them are actually ready to get uncomfortable? Because it's not going to be comfortable. The change is not going to be comfortable. But the reason we don't see change and we keep talking about the same things is because people are comfortable and they make money. 
um, producers are not, not many producers are profitable, especially the smallholders. Of course, there's uh, been a couple of discussions recently, especially I would say from the African perspective of smallholder farming is not profitable. I agree. So what do we do to change smallholder farming and what can we do for smallholder farmers, especially given land issues in Africa and the fact that, you know, we hold so dearly to this land and it's something that you inherited and all of that. So how do we organize our smallholder farmers in a more effective way for them to earn more profit? There's other issues uh, that play here. One, yields have fallen. In Kenya, yields have dropped by like 64% in the last, I would say since 2012. Why are yields dropping? Um, sort of government support in terms of, I would say, maybe um, extension services and things like that. But I'm like, we're always playing politics at very high level and not looking for tangible solutions on the ground that can actually effectively shift the balance. So from where I stand, I say I'm also not a complainer. Like I hate talking about the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There has to be a solution. And if it's not like a solution that the entire industry can adopt and that's never going to happen, we have to start somewhere. And personally, I feel there are things that we do both as an organization, uh, both at Henta del Futuro and Vava Coffee, that can slowly help change mindsets within the sector. Um, one, invest more in education through the entire chain. Um, and for me, the reason we have all of these issues is a lack of proper education on what a sustainable coffee industry looks like. What does that look like? When I speak to importers, when I speak to roasters, when I even speak to a barista in North America or Europe, I'm amazed by how little they know about origin or how little or, or the lack of genuine information that's out there. So we've identified the following gaps. Data is an issue. There's hardly any factual data out there to inform people of what actually happens at origin. Um, and most people will often go to like the resources that they always see or like maybe you Google the ICO or whatever, you pick your data from there and you trust it and you move on. Um, or maybe someone writes a report or I don't know, you, you go and look for the, you know, your usual sources of, of information. And we've decided to invest in education. Why? Because there's a couple of other risks which we don't address as an industry. Uh, next generation involvement. Uh, who's going who's gonna to grow coffee uh, when the 75 or 85-year-old farmer in Kenya, you know, dies? I mean, we're not looking at engaging youth in an industry that is seeming less lucrative, but in all honesty, I see coffee as still very lucrative. We just have to change the way we do things, even in a small way, because right now with social media and if information is put out well, it can radically transform um, uh, and in, it can not only transform, but it can actually also get the bigger players to change how they operate. So I would say in, in our own small way, um, especially which is what informed the formation of Hente del Futuro, it's to educate um, the, the, the sector, to educate the industry on, um, and in a very practical way, because a lot of the education out there is, is too, what do you call it? It's too, it's too textbook. Uh, 
nobody is giving a very practical approach to coffee education. Um, with Hente del Futuro, we, we focused on giving a practical experience to whoever approaches us for, you know, to, 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 to take on a course or to, to work with us. Um, you live on a coffee farm. Um, you are exposed to the local community. You get to learn about the different varietals of that region. And we expose you to three different coffee growing um, origins. That's Kenya, Tanzania, Colombia. And you get an appreciation of what um, people at origin actually um, encounter on a day-to-day basis. We're not putting you in some um, bougie classroom, hiding you from all the elements of the world that could, you know, blow you over. You're exposed to what farm life is in any of these uh, coffee-growing regions. And for the people that have gone through um, this program, the, the young people that have gone through this, they've come out, I would say, more knowledgeable, more appreciative of the coffee sector. And most of them have actually taken up uh, careers within the coffee sector. Not most of them, actually all of them. So, and we've been approached, you know, by other roasters, uh, traders, to see how we can actually uh, onboard some of their employees to get this type of exposure. Because... Um, I don't know if I'm digressing, Ashley, but I'm just like, when we keep talking about the same issue over and over, for me, it's just a lack of knowledge. People don't know any better, so they keep talking something to death without actually addressing the actual pro- problem on the ground. And I'm like, a lot of us within this sector suffer from just a lack of knowledge. And I know that a coffee, a career in coffee is expensive, but it's important to also invest in the right type of education to inform your, your decisions. And so, which is why I think nowadays when I speak to people, I would say in, be it in the U S or Europe, I'm a little bit more forgiving with the ignorance because I think a lot of them are li- really ignorant, but not out of their own fault. It's, it's not out of their own doing. It's more like if the industry keeps, you know, selling this to you in this format, that's all you can digest. But I'm like, we need more stories from origin. We need, and origins other than Latin America, because Latin America, there's a lot of stories out there. How about other origins? Uh, and I love my, my Latinos. I love all the, my Latin American brothers and sisters. But I'm like, uh, there's a lot of those stories out there simply because of also distance. The U.S. and Latin America are close. So I'm like, if primarily, um, you know, given most of the stories and most of the initial investment was done in Latin America, those are the stories that people know. But also, not everyone has had the opportunity to, to ever visit origin. And how do we give people these opportunities? So therein lies, I'm like, even for me, Ashley, let me give you, like, even from a personal story, the only reason I am the way I am now is because my parents invested in education for me. And I got exposed to cultures around the world. Like I have had the privilege of traveling around the world, of t- uh, taking my A-levels in a Canadian high school at a very young age. I left Kenya when I was 16 and I had to start fending for myself. And that opened up my mind and it opened me up to, okay, fine. Um, 
you know, white people may not really like know about Africa. I'm not going to get angry. They've never visited Africa. I will be patient and I will teach whoever speaks to me, but then I can also challenge them to also take an interest in Africa. But um, learning from others, traveling, um, learning by doing or learning from actual examples from people that are doing them. And that is why even for us, we partnered up with a Colombian um, organization to do what we're doing at, at Henta del Futuro. And, and uh, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope I've actually answered your question in all of this. No, you have. You've answered my question for sure. Um, but it's, it is like a, it's a big issue. So I, I understand that there's a lot to say. Um, yeah. Do you think you get treated differently based on the identity that you occupy in your in your role as a coffee importer? Um, definitely. I mean, it's I'm not going to sugarcoat it because um, I've seen, you know, people either, you know, tippy toe around me, not, you know, trying to say the politically correct thing. Um, and people really not knowing how to carry on a conversation around me because one, um, I'm a vibrant, strong black woman from, you know, Africa who is very, I mean, uh, in a trade which is predominantly run by white men in Africa. And there's a lot of other white folks coming into Africa to, to, to trade coffee. So they tend to be favored over people like me. But when uh, folks realize that, oh, she is knowledgeable about what she does and we would like to get to know how she does it. But I find there is an uncomfortable sort of approach to say how I'm treated, but I'm not taking, I, I never take that as a, you know, with a, as a disadvantage and I don't have a chip on my shoulder for that. For me, I'm just like, you know what, folks, have, I mean, people just have to, um, stop being, uh, what's the word, like cowards and stop being, hiding behind, um, you know, sort of, I mean, what's, I've had, I've had, I've been told several things. One, um, a black exporter from, uh, from Africa is, is never really trusted because people will, don't know if they're going to get their shipments. And I know there's people who like be rolling their eyes about that, say, but I'm like, it's true people would rather buy coffee from a fellow white um, person from origin because apparently white people are more trustworthy. Uh, Despite the fact that you're buying coffee from Kenya and you'd trust a British or an American guy to sell it to you uh, because apparently they seem to know more about that origin than the Kenyan who's selling the coffee. And, uh, but yeah, maybe like attracts like, but uh, I, I do, I'm not saying that everyone has reacted or acted with me in this manner. Of course, there's people who have warmed up to me and want to work with me and people that I've worked with, but the industry is still ridden with a lot of racism and a lot of also, um, I would say, um, chauvinism. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's there, like all those uncomfortable moments. I mean, I've been in situations where uh, people have said the most inappropriate things about um, me not looking, like, you know, fitting the mold of someone who is actually working with producers and um, a white person's story is more believable because uh, I don't know. 
you know, but you know, maybe yes. it also goes back to the fact that white people came as missionaries to Africa and they, they do know how to sell a good story about how they're saving Africans. And for me, um, those African people are my people. So I'm not going to portray them uh, from a, from an angle of poverty porn. I'll never portray my fellow Kenyans or my fellow Africans from an angle where, Oh, here's a poor coffee farmer. Let's help them. No. Um, so I don't know, Ashley, but, but it's been, there's been a lot of uncomfortable moments with that, but, um, you know, um, I'm an open person and I'm willing to educate whoever needs to be educated about uh, what it takes to actually set up a business in Africa as a woman um, and as an African woman at that, run it with all the hardships that come with it without the privilege. Um, because I know a lot of um, folks who, um, you know, may get treated differently even by our government simply because of their skin color. Uh, and I mean, for me, I'm open to a discussion where people, you know, get educated on what we go through and how they can do things better. So it's also a moment of learning for a lot of these folks who do not know. And that's why I'm not even angry at people that have said the oddest things or looked at me in the oddest manner when um, they learn about what we're doing. So I'm like, it's not, it's all about, for me, I look at it as a learning opportunity for folks that need to know more about people like me, or, you know, I would say the, the actual, the, I mean, the, the ethnic Kenyan ethnic person from Burundi who started a business out of passion in their home country and the respect that should be accorded for, for such a decision. And, and as long as someone is running their business in an ethical manner and they've never stolen from you and they get you your shipments on time and they're passionate about their work. Um, you know, not, you know, nothing else matters. I mean, but I think it's, it's a learning, it's a learning moment for, 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 I think the industry as well. Well, you mentioned kind of briefly this idea of like the white savior and how so many missionaries go to Africa and kind of are able to weave this very specific narrative that is appealing to people with buying power. And I wonder like, how do we, how do we step out of that? And maybe that's not a question that anybody can answer, but also like, I guess I really want to make a statement that that's very real in coffee. Like there is, there are people who like go to Africa are white and we, for some reason, trust them more and talk about them more. And I think that there are a lot of very real examples in coffee right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder like how, how this narrative of the white savior, not just like affects the way that we buy coffee, but also affects the way that farmers understand their relationships with buyers. Cause that's something that you've mentioned once before too, is that a lot of farmers wait for those moments of someone coming and, doing these development projects? Well, I think um, for me, it's just um, being blunt about about things because it'll never change unless we actually speak the truth about the situations. I don't mind collaborating with folks from uh, other parts of the world to um, uplift livelihoods in Africa, and we need that. But we need it more in a form where they are actually not trying to look like saviors, more like, we're doing good for the community and it's good that we'll remain if even after we're gone and we're not here to preach 
to you or to dictate. We're here to collaboratively achieve something. Um, the one way of going about this is why can't this so-called white saviors already work with existing, um, you know, uh, people at origin, people with folks with lucrative businesses that already exist at origin and collaborate. Even if you want to set up your own enterprise, you know, it is polite to, um, try and sort of fuse partnerships with folks at origin and to ensure that you're also not looking like this, uh, sort of per savior that has come to, you know, bring, you know, feed the poor, educate the, you know, the, 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 the people that are not educated. And so it's, it's also how they sell their message that makes them look like white saviors. And, um, I think there needs to be more sensitivity in how people put out their marketing. And, and, um, I think ego comes in the way of, um, ego has come in the way of how people, actually want to uh, put out the message on the work that they do. And I think also as an industry, if we had more proactive um, storytellers who can tell the stories of great, be it young people at origin doing great work in coffee or running good businesses or people at origin also running their own lucrative businesses. But I also, you know, this is also a fault of ours at origin, not just in Africa, in other developing countries, we worship these white people. We think that they are the solution to our problems, and yet they create more problems for us um, because they are not culturally um, efficient when they come to origin. Very few of them take the time to actually understand the culture at origin and how to actually um, work in a mutually beneficial way with communities at origin. A lot of them have a budget, they want to come throw money, have an impact of some sort, write a story, take some good pictures and leave. Many of, a lot of them are not like, do not have this long-term investment uh, with origin. I know quite a few that are, um, but they're only like a handful. Um, and um, for me, it's, if, if we as Africans also change our perception of what, we should actually let in to say our communities in terms of a developmental partner or um, an investor. And we stop worshiping these people and embrace our own. And I've seen it happening slowly, even with our farmers. I mean, the moment Vava coffee went on the ground and we started telling farmers about what we wanted to do them, very few of these farmers believed us because, you know, Ashley, this, this problem stems from, um, this problem stems way back from colonial era. I mean, we've been infiltrated with missionaries. I mean, we, we had our own religions. Then come the missionaries and now the Bible is, you know, uh, the Bible is everything. Um, but we have worshipped the white per the white man for the longest time. And it's up to us to actually change that mindset and say, you know what, we have the solutions to our own problems. We can collaborate with foreigners. We can collaborate with several developmental uh, partners and investors. But at the end of the day, if we don't take ownership of 
our own problems and tackle them with our own, um, you know, homemade solutions, we will never move forward. Every other solution will be a temporary solution. So for me, I see this as a, it's, it's on both ends. You know, unfortunately, we think that, you know, white people are all that. And they also have taken advantage of that perception. And which is why you see a lot of them coming with an ill-informed um, approach to, you know, investing in coffee in Africa. So it is, it, it's about, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. That's a tough one. But um, I think if we also start telling stories of, uh, of just initiatives and things that have been done at Origin that did not necessarily include, um, you know, someone swooping from the sky to come and save a community. And, and also, other than that, it's just if you're an importer and you have an investment, I mean, in Africa, I mean, stop with this poverty porn uh, on social media. Um, Africa is more than that. Africa is sexy. There's a lot of amazing things that happen in Africa other than showing poor coffee farmers or kids who are, you know, we don't need the poverty point. Right, right. It seems like you, for these projects to even be marketed, there has to be this like, we're helping these people who are way, like way worse off than we are. And even if that's not always the case, like it's still painted that way. Mm -hmm. And that's how that white savior kind of continues to propagate. And I think something that you also mentioned too, is that solutions need to come from the communities where, you know, that would benefit from them because not every solution is going to be tenable for every coffee community. A solution that works for farmers in Colombia won't necessarily work for farmers in Kenya. Um, And that's something that I think you've mentioned before too, that when Westerners come and try to do these development projects, it's almost like with like a blanket set of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. What? Okay. So imagining that like our audience is mostly baristas, Mm -hmm. I think some of these ideas are number one, mind blowing. And number two, almost far away for them. So I wonder what, what can baristas do to help stay engaged and fight, fight these ideas of like white saviorism and working with roasters who maybe don't understand like where their coffee is coming from. Uh, great question, Ashley, because I think, um, given how big the barista community is and how involved they are and the energy that I see in baristas. In fact, the best parties that I've ever gone to at Expo are always the barista parties. And I I believe this is a group that can help um, shift uh, the conversation a lot. If, and this is not um, a plug on me uh, marketing uh, Henta del Futuro at all, but then again, if it is, it wouldn't be a bad thing. So, yes. <laughs> so I see, like, I think um, baristas, given uh, the age profile I see out there of baristas and their hunger for knowledge, I would say that every barista should invest in at least a trip to origin that has a proper educational experience. And I'm not talking about like, um, and I know finances are, um, an, are an issue for a lot of us and a lot of baristas who are probably starting out, but it is important for us to invest in education in whatever capacity we are. 
whether you're a barista, producer, um, consumer. And um, I, I want to sort of paint a picture of what a barista can get out of Gente del Futuro. Um, now, Gente del Futuro has, a, a, it's a training program that um, can be structured to everyone's needs. We start with a very, there's a short 12-day program, but I would say I would encourage folks to invest in maybe a month, or three months or the nine month program. I know nine months is a lot for any person to take off work, but if not, at least invest in a 12 day program where you get to spend time on a farm in Africa. And um, I emphasize Africa because I know that a lot of folks, it's easy for them to jump on a flight, get to Colombia, get to um, Costa Rica, Latin America origins. Um, because I think from the, the, the couple of baristas that I know, there's the hunger and there's the willingness. And this is something, I mean, they could even approach their employer to, to uh, you know, to get them a scholarship to, to attend for 12 days and come spend some time with the community in Moshi, uh, learn about different coffee varietals from... Um, the different um, origins, both Kenya, Tanzania, and get to have an actual farm experience and learn about more about the community. Um, the reason I'm actually pushing this agenda more is because there's very little knowledge out there about African origins. Um, I know recently there was a book put out about Ethiopian coffee varietals, um, Timothy Hill, I believe, from Counterculture, uh, together with um, an exporter from, um, from Ethiopia, and even I was blown away from um, the information that I gathered from this uh, from this booklet. Um, it opened up my, uh, you know, my eyes and, and made me more knowledgeable about uh, varietals from Ethiopia. And I know they're working on um, more projects that are that are similar. But education for me should should never should be a never ending experience for people. And I think the one thing that baristas can do is to constantly pursue more knowledge outside of just barista skills and um, all the competitions that I see. I think it is mandatory for every barista. If you're serving a cup of coffee to a consumer who does not have that, you know, the knowledge that you have or the privilege to even know what coffee is and you're the person that is more passionate than this consumer – Every, your employer or yourself, if you're self-employed, should invest in at least a trip to both Africa and Latin America, if you can, if you can afford it. If you can't find a way of getting a sponsorship, it would only cost you short of $2,000. We would make it happen. You would live on a coffee farm. You would learn what you can learn about um, that origin Um and you'd get out of there, I think, a better person. Of course, that's a 12-day 12, 12 program. If you can engage in a nine-month program, there's packages for that. But for me, it's there's so much that I think people can get out of just a practical, hands-on experience of how processing methods, the agronomy behind, um, you know, the different coffee uh, varietals, how the community um, relates to the businesses that... that um, the coffee businesses in that region. And you go out of that 
you know, just being, I think, a more fulfilled human being. So that's one thing I think that baristas can do. Another thing is also for baristas to champion and to sort of push the industry to get, I would say, more producer voices at forums. Um, and producer voices that they've never heard of and to sort of move away from this constant conversation about um, talking about producer profitability without action. You know, we can talk about it, but let's also look back at what actionable points we've made as, a, as an industry in, in bringing about change. Um, and just asking questions. I think the more curious we are as an industry, the better for all of us. And I think as adults, at some point, we kind of stop being curious and it's it sort of ruined it, it's ruined a lot of us and I think if baristas just kept asking questions I mean the more curious you are um, the more results I think we all get in whatever sector we are so for me one I'm definitely plugging in Hente del Futuro as a must for every barista wherever you are come spend some time with us we will educate you you will get a very fulfilled experience. And um, you also get the opportunity to do Kenya, Tanzania, Colombia, depending on if you can get a scholarship. So that's an amazing experience. And um, yeah, and ask questions. Always ask questions. If you see me anywhere, please ask me questions. That's one thing I'm going to tell any barista. If you see me, if you follow me on social media, ask me a question about anything you want to know regarding coffee. I will find my best way of, you know, helping you get the right answer or helping educate you if I can. Mm -hmm. I have two, two big questions for you to kind of wrap things up. Mm -hmm. um, so number one, mm -hmm. what do you think about the coffee industry needs to change on a very grand scale? Just big question. Just if you could change any two, three, one, anything, what would you change? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to answer you a lot uh, but to sort of narrow it down without like a long winding down thing conversation one more diversity um, more accountability uh, more ethics education 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 and um I would say just, I think education covers like just about everything that I actually want to say in, in, in a more like, be it uh, issues of racism, gender issues, all of that. It's covered under education and um, diversity as well. And then, yeah, so for me, I think um, there's room for all of that. And um, lastly, um, I would say more collaborations like within the sector in terms of, and I think we can all benefit from um, good collaborations within the sector. You don't have to be a big company to collaborate with a big company. I mean, let's have collaborations between big, the big boys and a smaller company that, that knows the situation on the ground. Our expertise is grassroots work. So, so I'm like, collaborations that make sense that can actually help elevate the situation. So that's how I would answer that question. Second question. I really like learning about people themselves. Um, I think there's 
there's a lot of talk in coffee just in general about like big ideas and the work that you do. But like, I'm also very interested in people. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how you would describe yourself and you have a little bit, but like, how would you, how do you think you describe you and how do you think your friends would describe you? (laughs) Um, okay. How describe myself? Um, brutally honest. That's one descriptor. (laughs) Um, and passionate about anything that I love. Um, an extremely passionate person. Uh, curious, energetic, um, committed, and I would say maybe my friends might say I'm um, what's aggressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and um, a lot of people say they like me better when I laugh and smile than when I have my serious face on. Um, that's particularly to my, um, my, my business partner, Alejandro. And <laughs> it's funny listening to people answer this question differently. Um, I've only started asking it more recently because yeah. you use a lot of like positive affirmations, which is really awesome. Yeah. I've heard the last person I interviewed almost use all negative words. And I yeah. was like, wait, hold on. Like, Really? <laughs> what do you, yeah, like, or like kind of like, not, ne- not negative words per se, but maybe not as positive, um, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> oh. What, are, what are your goals for yourself? Like, how, how do you see your life unfolding in like the next five or 10 years doing Vava Coffee and also doing anything else you want? Um, certain goals for myself. I mean, currently, I mean, I have a hard deadline from um, Alejandro uh, Galante to <laughs> achieve <laughs> uh, targets for Hento del Futuro. So um, that's for me. I'd say the the I want to leave a footprint um, that I actually did something that mattered to my community and to an industry, and which is why. I also do a lot of volunteer gigs. I volunteer a lot of my time, uh, be it mentoring um, other young people and other young women um, in pursuing their dreams. I actually mentor a lot um, in the agribusiness side of things. And um, for me, it's to... And people, funny enough, um, everyone... Most people, in, I mean, including just most recently this week, someone said to me, you know, you should tell your story more often because it inspires a lot of people. And sometimes, in all honesty, Ashley, sometimes I can be so broken down as an individual that I don't feel like speaking about what I do because it's so tough. Like nobody knows how tough it is or how lonely it is to like um, do this work and have a vision and despite the hardships, I mean, we'll have another podcast about hard hardships. This is, yeah. this is um, it's, yeah. So I'm like, people, not many people may know what goes behind uh, running a successful business. And even to me today, I don't, I still don't think I'm successful to the point where I envisioned <clears throat> I, I still have a long way to go, but 
when I share my story or when I share my experience with people, they, they see me as a successful person. And of course, I'm like, I think in life when someone says something nice about you, own it, take it and say thank you and run with it because then you're, I mean, you're going to miss out on the bigger things if you're not grateful for what you have already. So what I, uh, the, the plan is, I mean, I wish and I hope that with time, um, the work that I have invested in, we have invested in, uh, even uh, in Hente del Futuro, will be shared by many other people because I'm not doing this for myself. If I was doing it for myself, I, have, I would have quit a long time ago, but because um, Vava Coffee and Hente uh, del Futuro are bigger than me, um, I'd like to see the vision for those two um, organizations like um, come to life. And I'd like to inspire many other people to take a risk in life and, and pursue something they've always wanted to pursue, but they thought they were not worthy. They thought they were too small. And I'm like, you're never too small to have an impact in the world. Um, you should just try, take the first step. And as long as you're passionate about something, um, things will start happening for you. Uh, magic happens. If you're passionate, magic happens. Um, so I hope that magic continues to happen in my life. And um, yeah, and that the people who support me will keep supporting me. And um, I think this is the point where I'll, I'd, I'd also like to say thank you to one, my daughter, who, um, you know, she's, <laughs> she's watched all of this happen um, since she was born and she, she's a little coffee, uh, person herself. And, um, and, and also my partner, Alejandro Galante, who's very, um, has been very supportive both as a mentor and as a business partner. And I mean, um, I mean, this interview also comes at a point, uh, in my life where, I mean, there's been a lot of personal like setbacks and, um, and, I always have to remind myself, um, you know, to be positive uh, no matter what. And, and that uh, whatever journey I started on has always been, it's, it's always been bigger than myself. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for I'm taking, taking a moment to reflect and share your experiences. I think it is, it is really important to share stories and to share stories of success. But I think at the same time, it's also important to hear that it's not always easy and people struggle all the time. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time in general. This has been a really great interview. And I hope, as you hinted, this is not the last time we talk. <laughs> yeah. And thanks. Thanks for having me. And I, I really appreciate, uh, your interest. And I hope we, we do this again sometime soon, uh, hopefully in person, but I don't mind if it's over Skype again. And, and uh, yeah, thanks. And I look forward to if, speaking more. <laughs> if people want to reach out to you, how, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, our website, um, we've got two websites uh, for Hente del Futuro and Vava Coffee, but um, I'll, uh, I think the easiest way, especially passing on the message here, uh, our, our handle on Instagram is at Vava Coffee Kenya, which is the same for Twitter. So if you just drop me a line there, I can always send you more details. And our websites are on both of those. And if you also look for hentadelfuturo.com, you can find me. But yeah, so people can always like stalk me on social media and I'll respond. 
Yeah. That's how, that's how we got in touch. Yeah. (laughs) So look at that. Um, Mm -hmm. if you want to reach out to boss barista, that is boss barista podcast at gmail.com. And we're also at boss barista podcast on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, please send us your questions. Please send Vava your questions. Um, there's always information to learn and there's a lot of really cool stuff that people are doing. And if you have any questions, like we're here. So for Boss Barista, I'm Ashley Rodriguez, and we hope to hear from you soon. Bye. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.